Hey everybody, I just wanted to do a quick little caveat to this episode, reminding you that this episode with JP was recorded back in September, so some things may be out of date, but I've already talked to JP about coming back on for an update, so enjoy this episode, and we'll be sure to check in soon with JP again. Thanks. Trying to make it right, these people won't let me go. I'm just trying to live my life. I just need space to grow. I'm just trying to make it right, these people won't let me go. Let me grow, let me go. Let me grow, let me go. They should know, they should know. They should know, they should know. I'm just trying to live my life. I just need space to grow. I'm just trying to make it Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversations. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start my guest's bio and intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. This week, I am joined by my guest, Joao Paulo Connolly. JP is the organizing director of Austin Justice Coalition. In recent years, his advocacy and mobilizing efforts have focused on housing and mobility justice, land use, and equitable urban design. With the Austin Justice Coalition, he has helped mobilize campaigns for permanent supportive housing projects and services, as well as convene experts, service providers, and policymakers in efforts to design new systems fitted to the needs of a diverse unhoused community. JP has served on the Citizens Police Review Commission and on the Planning Commission for the City of Austin. He currently co-chairs the Leadership Council of Austin-Travis County's Continuum of Care and continues to serve on the Community Advisory Committee for Project Connect. He's also a founding member of Planning Our Communities. Hello, friend. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. I'm so happy that we finally are getting an opportunity. After all this time. Yep. Um, I was trying to meet me, trying to think about the first time we met. And I can't remember the first time we met. I think the first time we met was on like a Zoom call. Yeah, but I had known about you before, but that might have been the first time we actually, like, you're right. It might be actually. First time we actually had a conversation. Had to be when we worked together. Yeah, through work. Through work. But I had heard your name in community circles, obviously, because (laughs) Austin, JP, clearly does it all. Um, And yeah, I mean, when I convinced you to be a guest you were the number one person I thought to to talk about housing and mobility justice in the city just because I feel like it's a goddamn cluster (laughs) at all times um especially with the fact that like Austin's been changing so much AJC AJC has grown so much in the last two years uh you and I hung out the other night and I was and I literally had to ask like do you sleep because you do so much work so one, like, how did you get into this space of this sort of work? And how do you think your work has changed over the last two years in Austin specifically? Wow. Those are two great, big questions. Thank you. Um, I, I I got into this space uh, really just as an organizer with Austin Justice Coalition, uh, which was a, you know, grassroots community group that we um 
have been kind of nurturing for a long time and and watching it grow from being a very small thing into something much bigger and I was able to play a part in that in that history and with time as AJC grew and expanded we really wanted to be able to tackle housing justice and um, so I decided to I was asked um, by Chaz if, if I would be interested in, in taking on um, housing related advocacy and work and organizing. And I decided that that was something I was, I, w I wanted to do. I, I already felt passionate about it. Um, so started to dig in <laughs> and that's kind of how it got started. Um, I, you know, don't come from an academic background thinking about these different things and issues. And a lot of the things that we've worked on, I've had to learn about um on the fly and in in the situational context of trying to figure out um how we can change these systems that definitely do not serve low-income people or people of color in austin and definitely promote um, patterns of displacement and economic segregation and how do you even begin to reverse that long history uh, what does that look like so i think it's a fascinating topic and it's one that many people in austin are starting to wake up to how important it is and how relevant it is to their lives and i think connected to all of that is this question about change austin is a city that changes very rapidly grows um and you know i don't think there, it is possible to stop change change is is a process we're all in it everything everything changes cities are living breathing growing organisms um i think the question is who does the change serve and who benefits from the change so anyway <laughs> i'll get off my no box. <laughs> no stay on it stay on it as we were talking i was obviously like writing notes and i just want to know like what we all know, like, like you're saying, Austin's changing so quickly. Everything's becoming super unaffordable, for lack of a better yeah. word. How are those conversations happening now with Austin becoming <clears throat> such a wealthy city, transitioning over to, I feel like, a more whiter, wealthy, cisgender city? But talking to people, in my experience, of, like, the people who are like, Austin's liberal, like, all these things. I'm like, but liberal doesn't mean anti-racist and it doesn't mean affordable and it doesn't mean inclusive like how have those conversations been going do you feel um i think that since from my perspective since 2020 and you know what has been termed the summer of george floyd and mm -hmm. uh all that we lived through collectively as a society through the pandemic i think there's a lot more openness and willingness to discuss and mm -hmm. acknowledge that history of, of racism and that history of uh, <clears throat> kind of really just kind of rigging, rigging the game to favor um, certain groups. I think the pro I think one of the challenges we face right now is that a lot of the outcomes we're seeing around displacement, increasing housing costs, lack of access to, transportation that can serve working people mm -hmm. I think a lot of these issues are the result of decades and decades of policy right mm -hmm. the result of really centuries of policy but 
um, you know, at least the past 30, 40 uh, years have to be taken into account. So the things we're living right now are the result of this long history that has been accumulating. So I think a lot of interesting new policies are being worked on right now. Um, we've made strides in some areas. There's other areas like the need for a new land development code that remain gridlocked. But the changes that are being made now, we, we will only begin to feel the effects of those changes years down the road. Mm -hmm. And that's the tough part is how do you correct for such a long history? And I think that we you don't, um, not, not overnight. It's a process and what we have to embrace is the journey of saying we're not going to go back. We're not going to repeat and reproduce those patterns, which the status quo is there and it always tends to want to repeat the cycle. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to refuse that and reject that. It's hard having conversations about these things when the results of the conversations won't be felt immediately. The results will be felt three, four, five years down the road. And yet, if we don't do something about it now, it's going to be longer. It's going to be worse in <laughs> longer term. And also, there's so much to say about this, but one more thing I'll say is this question about I believe in right to return and right to stay. And I believe that folks who have been displaced could come back. Maybe, maybe some folks who have been displaced will choose not to come back. And I completely understand that. Maybe some of their children will. Um, but I believe that long-term giving up on Austin completely will also have consequences. Yeah. And so I think it is important to, to carve out spaces and territories in this city where Black and Brown people and Indigenous people can live and thrive and can live prosperous lives and can access the resources and the wealth that have been produced in the city because they were the ones who built the city you know yeah. people uh, uh you know people of color and and people who have been sort of underserved by our systems are the ones who built this whole thing to begin with so <laughs> okay so you should yeah. sorry you, I was no, all, all over the place sorry no this is why i wanted to have you on because it's like every time i talk to you i feel like i learn so much and i'm like i feel like i'm a pretty tapped in person and i talk to you i'm like i am not paying enough attention so you mentioned the land development code. Can you tell me what that is? Yes. Um, hopefully without... Uh, Drag out that soapbox, please. Hopefully without scaring all the listeners <laughs> no. off this podcast. Well, I mean, so the land use code is 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 basically a, a law that the city adopts, a set of policies that d regulate what can be built where hmm. and who has the right to build it. Um, and what what people are allowed to build and what people are not allowed to build. And um, the beginning of land use and zoning in the United States is explicitly racist. Um, the first zoning laws in America were designed to keep um, Asian American immigrants out of white neighborhoods mm -hmm. in, the, in the West Coast and to keep um, Black Americans out of white neighborhoods and keep Mexican-Americans out of white neighborhoods. And that is the beginning of zoning in the United States. Yeah. And so our zoning laws carry that legacy 
Um, they don't uh, use explicitly racist language anymore, and they can't. And, you know, since the civil rights era, you know, zoning regulations in the United States have found other ways to protect that segregation. Um, and sometimes they do it through enforcing strict, certain strict housing typologies and saying, you know, you can't, you can't do this here and you can do that there. So, um, you know, there's a real legacy of racism around zoning in the United States. Um, it is also worth acknowledging that like many of these systems, if you were to just completely remove it and say anyone can do anything anywhere they want, there would also be negative and harmful consequences to that. But how do you have a nuanced conversation about the fact that we desperately need more housing, we need more access to housing in all parts of the city, and at the same time, we cannot promote um, displacement of people. So that includes things like the redevelopment of an apartment complex um, where all the tenants are forced to move. Um, so we need to think about this balance, right? How can we promote new housing, new development so that there will be opportunities for people to live in town and not displace people who are, are living in town? Um, so that's the conversation. And I think many people know that anyone who was following it knows that, you know, the city attempted to rewrite its land development code many times. One time that was called Code Next. Um, and then that was abandoned and multiple attempts were made. Um, the last time we got very close was right before the pandemic started and the combination of the pandemic and a lawsuit um, blocking the land development code from moving forward has put the city's ability to update its land use policy in this terrible gridlock. So right at the moment when the city is facing its most, its worst of you know, crisis around housing in terms of access and affordability, the city's hands are largely tied in terms of policy to do anything to change that. Um, when AJC got involved and started looking at the land development code, we entered that conversation very late. That conversation had been going for a long time. Um, but we proposed a series of um, approaches to thinking about the land development code that asked questions about why aren't we creating more opportunities for housing in quote high opportunity areas high opportunity areas are areas that have historically been more exclusionary that have uh, historically been wider that have access often to good grocery stores that have access to higher paying jobs in the city and those are some of the same regions in the city where it's often hardest to build housing so how do we open that up and unlock that um so we tackle that and I think that the new code that was proposed would have made some important improvements on the current code. It wasn't perfect, but it would have been better. It would have been better than the gridlock where we're at now. But also, I don't want to just talk about land development policy all, all afternoon. No, but every time I talk to you, I'm like, selfishly, and I think you're sick of me saying this, like, between you and Warren, I'm like, please like run for office and I know the two of you are never going to be <laughs> selfishly what I need at all times I'm just like the way that you will explain things that it's like such a way that is accessible for people who just like to be able to see someone who looks like them who's like this is what's happening because like the wealthier whiter folks aren't going to do that work for us and like 
I know like you mentioned it like you're not like from an academic background but you're probably one of the smartest people I know and it's because I feel like you are always just absorbing information and sharing it out in ways that are conversational and accessible and I'm just like I'm leaving Austin like Austin's gonna be fine it has JP like I can leave and <laughs> my bag knowing that like you and other activists in this space are doing really important work um and then we can move on but i have like one more like well this business work. of you leaving austin makes me very sad i'll just say that. <laughs> it wasn't i'm happy easy, for you it wasn't on. an easy decision but it definitely goes to this like you know i run my own business i worked at ajc and i loved it i worked at another a number of other um organizations and i've loved them all but for me i was just like so burnt out and that's why I started my own thing. I'm still burnt out, but in a different way. I think like when activism is your full-time job, it, that line is so blurry and, you know, people like you get it, people like like other friends of ours who've been on who get it. But literally when I started telling people, they're like, well, you can't leave. What's going to happen to Austin? I'm like, the fact that I, it was a mixed thing. Like, I'm really honored that you like think I'm going to be the one to change the city, but it's also like, almost like a scapegoat of like it can't just right. be me so, well, and that, so is that too that speaks to the heavy burden that is thrust onto people of color in the city mm -hmm. and black and brown folks in the city where it is expected that black and brown people will advocate for fight for the changes they need, do all of the work to dismantle these structures mm -hmm. of institutional structural racism and build, you know, this more equitable, diverse mm -hmm. Austin, which ultimately benefits everyone. Right. But that work is expected to be done, um, you know, and especially by, you know, the handful of black and brown activists and organizers and people in the community who really get involved the expectation is you guys will do all this right. work um, it's also frustrating because it's like we didn't do it like we didn't break it but we have to save ourselves even though like the system is designed to the system's working correctly like it's doing what it's supposed to be doing but it's that work of like constantly having to get up and do this work every single day and having the same conversations every single day and feeling that like knowing that change is happening but not in like a quick way and like I think the perfect example is the grid. Like, as a person moving back to the Northeast by choice, um, but talking about like snow and infrastructure and like coming from a place where there is literally like a system in place that we have power when we need it. We, you know, can get plowed out. We can do all these things, but like we we experienced this really detrimental storm that affected people long term for months, even though the storm was only a day or two but the long lasting effects of it. And still, even now, two years later, two years later, um, that the governor hasn't done anything to change the grid. And there's been, you know, the conversation on like climate change is still one that he's not willing to have. So I think it's that too of like, I feel selfish leaving sometimes, but I'm also just like, I have a, I feel not guilty to like live in a place that like is more aligned with things I need and you and I talked about this the other day of like you know all the reasons I'm leaving but politically wise it's like politically wise <laughs> sure um it's like you know abortion access healthcare stuff the governor himself it's just like there's all these things but the amount of like almost like 
the way people wanted me to feel guilty for wanting to live a life that was more aligned with what I needed has been like super interesting and unfair and I know it comes from a place of like people saw me doing the work and I think it kind of gave them their scapegoat to not have to do the work yeah no I think that's that's absolutely real and I mean, Texas is increasingly becoming just a dangerous and, I mean, has always been mm-hmm. um, since colonial times, you know, has been part of this kind of violent expansionistic project of taking land and using it for the extraction of resources um, and, uh, you know, um, the, uh, um, sorry, my, you're fine brain blanked uh the extraction of resource so so much of the history of texas is about this history of you know expansionism extraction of resources and exploitation of human life um and viewing that as kind of like the norm and but i feel like in some ways we're the whatever veils protected us from having to see and live that history directly are now being pulled back Mm -hmm. and we're again being confronted with how real all of that is and texas is a terrifying place honestly yeah for so many people and so i do not fault people for um for seeking places where they can live happy and thriving lives and honestly the state of texas does you know act, actively and the state of texas under the current government actively um you know resists and and sabotages any mm. attempts to improve the quality of life for the people who live here yeah. um, or to change the state in any way or to you know kind of reassess this racist legacy the state of texas doubles down on its legacy of violence so in many ways choosing to live here is um exhausting and i think people for their own health need to take a break sometimes so i fully support any of my friends at this point um who who find that they need to move on Um, Mm. especially you know women or um people who uh are in any way thinking of or might uh need access to reproductive health and all of that stuff the state is is committed to denying women access to reproductive health care denying people who need yeah. reproductive health care that access so yeah <laughs> i mean i feel also like a lot of my queer friends are leaving too yeah like did like a really big queer exit the last like year year or two of like just because obviously the attack on trans folks and just that continued conversation and then also very much so yeah how a lot of govern like government bodies and other states are now using this row overturning to like push other like queer agenda like trying to make gay marriage illegal again so there's all these these things of how life is just never never ending so there's also that selfishly i want to also pivot back and then i'm going to make you stop talking about work um but mobility in this city well so i think mobility this again is a perfect example of this long history of doing nothing or doing things that are directly harmful and when you say mobility in the city you're talking about like transportation wise or well so i use the term mobility justice and and i think at, at ajc we've really 
tried to think of housing and mobility justice as two parts that can't be separated mm -hmm. um, and that are of course completely connected to um, the broader struggle for racial justice but the thing is it's thinking about mobility in a broader way than just transportation so mobility is more than just you know highways and cars yeah. and trains and buses which are all really important uh, it's more than just public transit and bike lanes it is you know who has freedom to move about to access the city who can afford to access the city who has the ability to access opportunities mm -hmm. um who, who who has the ability to occupy space and move through space in mm -hmm. public without feeling over policed surveilled at all times you know this it incorporates so the mobility is really broad it incorporates also the question about people who are forcibly moved right people mm -hmm. who people who are displaced, um, our unhoused neighbors who um, are camping while they wait for access to opportunities to live in housing and shelter um, are being forcibly displaced right now by Project Connect. And that is also a, a mobility justice issue because it's a violation of people's fundamental right to not move yeah. um, if they choose not to, right? And that also applies, of course, for long time residents and members in the community in East Austin being, being displaced from neighborhoods that they've historically had ties to. So all of this question about movement and, you know, it also incorporates uh, uh, immigration justice yeah. and the rights of uh, people who are migrating here because they're fleeing violence in other parts of the world and who need shelter and community here and their their ability to come to our community be integrated as members of the community and have rights here and access to things that they need in order to thrive so all of this is mobility now that can be a very broad subject um and obviously we don't tackle everything all the time <laughs> it's not everything everywhere all at once i mean it, it, that's you know i actually love that movie so much um but every but I, you know i love the movie i love the title and there is a sense in this work that we do that it is kind of a little bit of everything everywhere all at once right um but i think there's different pieces of the story that we can look at and that we're focused on and access to public high quality public transit for people is is a really important part of it um 10 of austin's renters um, do not own a vehicle. So 10% of Austin's renters are transit dependent. Only 2% of Austin's homeowners um, don't own a vehicle. So we know that mm. um, when we think about the experience of Austin's renters, we know that Austin's renters almost the amount, the percentage of Austin's renters who are cost burdened is mm. almost double the percentage of Austin's homeowners. And we know that that transportation piece is a part of what cost burdens people. So um, HUD determines that you are cost burdened if you spend more than 30% of your income on rent and um, over 44% of our renters are cost burdened right mm -hmm. now, but that doesn't take into account the, the extra cost they have um, with owning and operating a motor vehicle and paying for gas and oftentimes renters are forced to live further and further away mm -hmm. from the urban center of the city because we, we make it so difficult to build uh, apartments and dense multifamily and accessible affordable housing in the center of the city that a lot of the new housing that's getting built is being built further and further away from the city and we're forcing people to spend more and more money mm -hmm. on gas and longer commute times so that is a serious mobility justice issue and last year 
<clears throat> sorry, last year, no, it's been time passes so quickly, but in 2020, <laughs> when we passed Project Connect, that was this really unique, momentous moment in the history of Austin where voters said, you know what, enough is enough. We need to start building high quality public transit in the city. We've got to. Um, but that's a perfect example of now let's look at the decades and decades and decades mm -hmm. where we could have been doing that work and we could have been right. building that train line and we could have been building that infrastructure. And it was never a priority until now. It was never something, I mean, it was a priority for some people. Right. It was never a priority for enough of the Austin community that they were willing to pass something meaningful on the ballot to start building public transit. So I think there's this sense that like, okay, the buck stops with us. We we are not going to be the generation that just kicks the can down the road again mm -hmm. and lets the next generation think about these things. Like we need good, high quality transit, but it's going to take a long time to build. Mm. You know, it's going to take years and years before Austinites can benefit from some of this new infrastructure that we're talking about. And in the meantime, the cost of living keeps going up, the cost of transportation keeps going up. So we need to proactively do much more to prevent displacement. And we need to think about how, when we do build these new train lines, how we can really create opportunities for lots and lots of housing close to these trains so that people can live close to the train, take mm -hmm. the train to work, benefit from that infrastructure. Um, so we're not just building a, you know, multi, you know, a project that's going to cost, you know, billions and billions and billions, and it will only serve no, a handful it. of yeah. people who can afford to live by the train. So all of these things are super interconnected. Um, but, you know, going, I want to pivot. <laughs> well, no, well, well, taking a step back, mm -hmm. the another big giant word, <laughs> space. <laughs> um, the city over that history over those decades where the city of Austin chose not to really build out and invest in its public transit system, the city also made another choice. Mm -hmm. It made a choice to prioritize the use of space for single occupancy motor vehicles. It chose mm -hmm. to dedicate a significant part of the land in the city to surface parking lots. Mm -hmm. It chose to take East Avenue, which was this beautiful tree-lined avenue where there was a thriving black community and replace it with a giant highway um, with many lanes that became I-35 that sliced through and some of this is the city and some of this is the state and some of this is the state and the city working together um, and so a choice was made to build a city for the for the car um, and that choice also um so the choice to build a city for the car has racial implications. Um, right now in Austin, I think 77% of Austin's black community is renters. And 10% of Austin's renters are transit dependent. They don't own cars. So there's, there's intersection there. Mm -hmm. A city that doesn't have high quality public transit is a city that is stopping lower income people of color from accessing the kind of opportunities they need to have better lives so anyway <laughs> that's my soapbox so can we think about space and how we move through space and who is allowed to occupy space in a new way um which is not really a new way it's just mm -hmm. a new way for austin's status quo well i'll shut up now because i'm no. really starting to ramble no, it's, not a, it's not a ramble <laughs>
First of all, I can listen to your talk all day. So I'm like, yes. But we don't have to. All Wait, the what, things. Oh, shit. It's already 2.10. So it's okay. 3.10. Um, one of the other things that you would put in for us to talk about is like connecting people through community organizing. And I think about this a lot for me. And we've talked about this of like, we, Austin is like a big, small town. Like it's a very long city, but people you go to one thing you gotta start to see the same people over and over again um I just kind of like want to know like if you have and we could this could be a conversation not you just rambling but like advice you would have for like folks who want to get into activism space folks who want to be community organizers folks who maybe don't even know what the you sit on the commission like all these things like planning commissions what commissions do like how do people take those steps when they feel like a they do want to challenge the status quo but they don't know how to do so um and i think for me like i just started showing up at things like when i first moved here i did a lot of work in housing and so i got placed in a lot of like committees around housing um but that's because i worked in nonprofit spaces like for me it was super easy to find that stuff um yeah that's kind of my question of like how do we invite more people in because I know so many people do even still like have activist imposter syndrome they feel like they haven't experienced the thing or they don't know enough things to like have a right to like participate yeah I want you to help me answer this question okay because it's a really great question I would love to <laughs> um I think for me it was it was definitely getting tapped in first when I moved here I was a wee angel of 26 which is so wild to think about that I was a child. Um, but I, for me, I mean, I come from a family of activists. My godfather's a pastor. I've been marching in like demonstrations since I was five. So like for me, I was like, even if I like Google things and find organizations that are doing stuff, like I'm just in it. I'm just in yeah. it. Like you just figure it out. Or like, I think Austin is in that beautiful intersection of like, so many things already happened. We have in the city, we have the highest nonprofits per capita than any other city in the country. We're both the capital of the state. And there's a lot of political stuff that happens here in general. So the state capitals here. And then we also have a beautiful, frustrating thing, which is my personal belief of um, city council members for each district, which I love and annoys me at the same time, which is another conversation for another day. Um, but I think it's that access to like people can find out who their city council people are. So I think it's that level of access too. Um, but then I think it's also like because Austin is slash was such a young city when I first got here, like I also have no fear. Like I'll talk to a wall for six hours. Like I'm fine like going in, introducing myself, showing up to things alone. Um, but still still in a way feeling safe. I don't know for me after 2020 that sort of shifted I think after the demonstrations after the summer of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and we had those two young people that were shot by like the non-lethal weapons that the police shot them with and it definitely scared me then we had the insurrection happen and there was a demonstration the day of the insurrection here so I think it's that too of like it's it's and I definitely took a step back from activism after that, which now I feel like I'm rambling. But I think, you know, in the beginning when I first moved here, it was super easy to get tapped in. And now it's definitely shifted as I've gotten older because I still have friends 
And I think that happened because of the investment I put in at the beginning that when I don't feel safe, my friends and I have still found a way to like show up in other ways. Yeah. That's a tangent. <laughs> no, no, no. That's really interesting. <clears throat> you know, I think that's right. I think that activism in Austin does have these waves mm-hmm. um, where people get very engaged and there's a lot of energy and momentum. And then people Plateau. get pulled back into their mm-hmm. lives and responsibilities and get distracted. And then we lose that momentum. And a lot of like the past five years with AJC has been kind of watching these waves, right? When mm-hmm. Trump was elected in 2016, there mm-hmm. was a, a a large wave of engagement. And then there was another wave in, you know, in 2018. And then there was the pandemic and then George Floyd. So there's these moments of community crisis, the winter storm mm-hmm. that galvanized people. And then, you know, people returned to their routines. Um, and I also think in that sort of, kind of complex scenario that you're describing where it's like it's sort of a small town you know a lot of people it's there's some it's relatively easy to access elected officials mm-hmm. locally um it's also very fractured mm. um and i think the nonprofit industrial complex this word that we're yeah. sometimes this term that we're sometimes mm-hmm. scared of talking about plays a big role in that for sure um austin has such a huge need for organizing in so many spaces, whether it's housing, mobility, but I believe that organizing starts with solidarity and with, um, you know, from reading the wonderful work of uh, Adrian Marie Brown, um, an abolitionist thinker that inspires me a lot. She talks about um, two concepts, uh, vulnerability and generosity mm-hmm. and being vulnerable is like being, able to talk about what your needs are and being willing to and generosity is is kind of giving without the expectation of return and a lot of times in our nonprofit industrial complex culture we practice this kind of very um transactional uh relationships with each other highly transactional dealings um which is which stifles that sense of solidarity so lots of nonprofits have beautiful lofty missions um, but sometimes what is needed is almost to step outside of that mission so that you can be in solidarity with someone else. Like mm-hmm. if I'm interacting with you, I represent agency A and you represent, you know, a C3B <laughs> uh, and, and I'm interacting with you as, you know, strictly within my role and within the grid of my responsibilities to the agency or the nonprofit that I serve and you are operating from the grid mm-hmm. of where you're coming from, then it becomes very difficult for us to be in like just real mm-hmm. relation as people. But if we could be in real relation and you could tell me, you know what, I am so frustrated with this way that this process takes place in this bureaucratic structure. And I say, you know what, I have to deal with the same thing. It is frustrating. It's a waste of time. It gives me heartburn. And then across our organizational divides, we could find common cause. And I think there's so many issues like that in Austin that a bunch of folks feel similarly Mm -hmm. about the need to change. But who's doing that work of connecting the dots across all the different organizations and pulling folks together and saying like, let's focus on this one thing where we all can find solidarity and common cause. Because if you can do that, if you can disrupt the landscape 
um, of just the nonprofit industrial complex, I think you can really move the needle for change, but you need to inspire and galvanize like people across a wide mm -hmm. range of different kinds of little splintered interest yeah. groups. And so that I think that's the organizing that's missing. It can't be transactional. It has to be about relationships. It mm -hmm. has to be about building trust and community. And I think it has to be about like stepping out mm -hmm. in, into this place of vulnerability. Like here's what I need. Here's what mm -hmm. I'm dealing with. Here are some of the things that frustrate me. And, and then generosity, like how can I give something to you or share something mm -hmm. with you without that expectation of return? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, this makes me think of like the work I did when I was at a certain organization that served queer youth. I'm not going to mention it here. And think about like how many queer organizations are in town and how a lot of this, the work that we do is very similar. And I'm like, why isn't there just like one organization and we just like all combine and do one thing? And like same with housing, there's a lot of housing orgs in town. I'm like, it would be, I think it would be so much more beneficial if like they were all just like one helm and like right. we're able to do it that way. And so I always think of this too, of like pride in, in organizing is such a thing yeah. of like, there are folks who just think like because they've been around for 20 30 years or like they know everything there's to know about this one thing and i'm like no there's so many younger people who are coming up who are going to give you a different perspective but then there's like which one do i choose which i think is why i like go and work at so many different organizations all the time is because like i never wanted to get siloed into one thing like i've always worked at organizations that were of interest to me like everything from housing into queer youth to disabilities to all these all these different things but I think about like if we were just able to do like this organization that serves queer folks in a health lens queer folks in a housing lens queer folks in mental health capacity like if they were just one blanket organization but still did that work together a I think it would be easier for people to get involved so it's just like a one-way entrance but then also too I think there's just like way more communication that would happen too but that's like my ideal yeah. way of like how organizing would be and I know it's not realistic because Again, Austin has like one of the highest nonprofit in like capital rates in the country, but. And it's weird how fractured the space is. And yet when you need to, you know, some of the, move the needle around some of these really important things that affect mm -hmm. people's lives, you're like, okay, well, who's going to show up? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, there's, there's no one there, or there's just a little handful of folks who actually show up. So it's like, where is everybody else? And it's not to say that folks aren't doing important work. I think that we get sucked into the weeds a lot. Mm -hmm. I think that we get really caught up internally in our processes and it can be easy to lose the big picture of what the thing is like that need to like, like zoom back out, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, look at the whole forest, see the whole forest. Um, I I think that we, we lose that very easily. So I, but we've had little glimpses in Austin that give me hope. Mm. For instance, with the community investment budget coalition initiative that was pulled together, we were able to get a number of really amazing things into the city's general fund for the first time, like raising the minimum wage for city workers and um, increased funding for a number of different quality of life areas in the city, funding for rent relief for the first time in the general fund, there's rental assistance money and money for shelter, things that we didn't historically used to fund in this city. We are now funding 
because this large coalition of groups came together from very different places, very different interests, and all managed to sort of get on the same page, if only for a short while, um, that was super impactful. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's just one example. And I think that that's only scratching the surface of what's possible if you move away from, I think it's, I think much more can be done the less you rely on this transactional thing. Mm. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I don't know. What do you, th what is your opinion mm. about this idea of generosity and giving? Because I think it's really easy to get pulled into a scarcity place mm -hmm. where you want to protect and hoard and mm. guard the resource that you have, the funder that you have, mm. the whatever it is that you have. Um, and I don't deny people that because they're, you know, I think in some ways there's, there's this trauma response to living in lack and to not having things. And I don't know, what, what do you think about that? From a fundraising perspective or an activism perspective? I those think are very, those are two different lenses for me. Well, I think from the activism and community building perspective, mm -hmm. like, do you think we can, like, how much I, do you think this sort of scarcity mindset? I, I don't believe in a scarcity mindset when I think of activism work, when I think of fundraising. And I literally couldn't think of that word yesterday. So thank you for reminding me of it. Um, I literally had a call yesterday with this group I've been working with, and it's a, a, a collection of fundraisers. And I was like, we need to stop thinking from a scarcity mindset, which I talked to Pamela Benson Owens about this before too. And, and same with... Um, Oh my God, with Sharonda and um, Terry, Mark Mitchell too, of like their, the amount of like wealth in Austin in general, and that's both financial and social. This is my soapbox time. So financial and social wealth, like Austin's a very wealthy city. There, are, There's a very big gap from like the super wealthy and, and the folks who aren't super wealthy for sure. But if we talk about it, on a city level, Austin has a lot of money. As a oh city. yeah, there's money. There's money, and we—I mean, when I was at AJC, I got there right after mm -hmm. y'all did the work with um, reallocating funds, aka defunding the police. Um, and I had a funder call once, and like we had a whole conversation about it, like why, and I was like, "There's so much money in this city; they don't need it." Different conversation for a different day. Focus. I think there is so much wealth in this city. Number one. I also think this city is filled with brilliant people who are driven, who care, people who have taken the last two years to really get out of their own shit. Like, especially in, in white spaces, I have a lot of friends who are, who are white and we have a lot of conversations around this, <clears throat> about, we had a lot of conversations around privilege and access and, and all these things. And I think it's because because I am very privileged, like for me to have that conversation with them, it really like lowered the high stakes they might've felt like, I never take privilege as like a bad thing. It's just like, you have it or you don't, and you need to address it and you move forward. So I think when we're thinking about scarcity in general, I just, I don't think we are scarce. I think we're not doing a good job at investing in the proper places. I think if we had enough people who cared about certain things who we could keep the interest of them, like you were saying, like that sort of wave that Austin goes through. If we had people with so many people who we have here with so much wealth that we have in the city, if we had people who 
you know, we, I know people have lives and shit happens. Like if we could get different walks of people with different statuses of wealth to focus on all the major issues in the city, I feel like we could drastically change the city, its whole landscape, its whole experience. Um, but I also think the activism space would change because so many people seeing how much money I've been able to raise for organizations in this city and knowing how many people care, but a lot of people aren't approached to give because people are afraid, like, I'm not able to talk to this donor properly, or, you know, this person can't give X amount of dollars. I'm like, no, but they have social wealth. So what does that mean for you? So I feel like I forgot your question, but. Well, no, I mean, I, yeah, I think you answered it. I think you're, you're answering, it's not an easy thing to answer, but this whole, like, you know, I, I think how, how does scarcity stop us from, from, the scarcity idea i think the scarcity idea is in our mind yeah i think we've been told that for so long i think also too like marginalized groups have been taught to do more of that like that 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 infighting versus focusing right. on wealthy cisgender right. ableist all those all those right you those compete over groups. here over this one you million. don't yeah here's a million dollars for 40 billion over here yeah but y'all fought over this million because that's all we're willing to give you. And that can be A, because we are hesitant or afraid to go ask for a piece of the 40 billion, or we feel like that because they gave the 1 million, that's enough. And I don't believe that. Yeah. Well, I, so I, I, I see that dynamic plays out in real time where it's like, there is this tendency to create a public policy that says, you know, we're going to create a little bucket of money over here mm -hmm. for something. And here you go and then all the community groups scramble to get mm -hmm. a little piece of that right. but there's this much larger conversation about like well what about all of this other mm -hmm. wealth that's not being accessed mm -hmm. um you know when we you know yeah is it i think that i think i think that that small mindedness and you're right and then we're stimulated to go fight over a little piece this of this is why i'm vehemently against grants and it's a main reason why I don't get a lot of the jobs I apply for. It's because I, I hate grant writing. I refuse to do grant writing. It's always a question as to why. And I'm like, I think grants are steeped in white supremacy. And follow me along on this tangent. If you look at grants, you have to be a certain, uh, you have to have a certain amount of time, right? A lot of small nonprofits that are run by people of color don't have the manpower to focus primarily on grants. The language that used, that's used in grants comes from very highly educated places. And then a lot of the time, the amount of work you're going to put into it to for the money, the financial investment back isn't worth it. And I tell people all the time, like, I would rather go and find a donor who can give me 10, 10 grant of unallocated funds that I never have to report on versus having to go and apply for a grant that you're going to ask me to do all this work to get it and then all this work to report on it. For what? Are you actually really invested or do you want to just say that, you know, we were able to give this away, but you didn't give it away. I had to work for it. And so it's also that too of like coming from both sides of, of nonprofit work of like the direct client social work aspect of it, but then also like the admin financial sort of C-suite experience of it too of like that that direct juxtaposition of like you want this work to be happening but you want us to almost validate the work we're doing in order to get this money when you can just be like, hey, I would rather someone like do a pitch for me versus write me a grant. Like I can talk to you for hours about the work that I do in the organization 
but you want me to write like I'm and I'm a good writer I just refuse to feed into this like cyclical motion of grants perpetuating like all these things into small marginalized groups through the lens of like you're giving me money but I have to almost do a song and dance in order to get it yeah hate grants yeah no that's really interesting I I definitely agree and I think that that frustration is very real I think it's difficult for groups not to Oh, yeah. um, not to chase grants because they you know the, the alternatives are not always great but yeah. I, I think you're right I think that in many ways it forces people to push it it, it it perpetuates some of the more toxic aspects of the nonprofit industrial complex but imagine like okay we look at Austin's budget which is ridiculous um and let's say like we Austin was like hey we're going to give money to organizations that serve queer folks, housing, mobility, and healthcare, for example. And you had all these people who were able to like go in and apply for it, but not in a grant way, like just like in a pitch style. And like, you can't win two years in a row. Like it has to like go and flow and all those sort of things. Like if I like think of like my idea way to fund, like these are the things that keep me up at night is like, if I had all the money in the world, how would I give it back to nonprofits? I know this is my Oprah moment. Um, But just thinking about that of like, I I know that nonprofits are in place because cities, states, federal government levels fail us and nonprofits are there to pick up the slack. And, you know, having worked in so many nonprofit spaces and with so many people who do this work, like I would love to like not have to come to work because all this stuff was figured out because the government just did what it was supposed to fucking do. I'm like that would be yeah. the ideal life. But yeah. But that's the longer term vision that we need to have for yeah. structural change um because i mean i hope to work myself out of a job because a lot of the things that i spend time advocating for i don't think in a i think in a reasonably just society that that recognize the intrinsic worth of everybody mm-hmm. no one should have to fight for these like these things are not things that, that should require advocacy maybe there would still need some coordination and some organizing but i wouldn't have to go out and fight for these things so i think that the very fact that that there's job for me and it it just attests to the fact that like things are highly dysfunctional Mm -hmm. like if i need to step in and get involved it's because things are going pretty bad (laughs) um so i mean i i would love to work myself out of a job and i don't want to create a system where i'm building in the perpetual need for advocates. No, I want systems that are functional and that take care of people's needs and they get resources to the communities that need them. Um, so I can go live on a little hut by the beach and <laughs> sleep in a hammock, <laughs> in hammock and become a fisherman one day. Um, that's my life that's the i'm gonna get there one day i naturally <laughs> hammock a couple months ago and it was like the best sleep i've ever had in my whole life like what is it anyway not the point of the conversation i mean this could be the point i am just i think I, I mean i think you're right i think it's definitely that that too and i always give you such a hard time because i feel like you're always working i know you're not but that's like the pisces in me in bath i'm like oh my god i need my activist friends to not work themselves to death um so yeah how do you find rest actual rest jp when you're not doing activist work um i'm learning and i think um, friends like you are helping me think about how important that is so i'm really grateful to have people that are 
constantly reminding me of the need. Someone once told me that rest is a form of resistance and it really changed the way I look at rest. So yeah. I'm going to pass that on to you. No, I think that that's right. I think the, you know, the thing that's difficult is you carry these unfinished conversations inside of you and, mm -hmm. and these projects and these like last minute requests that come at you from all different places. And um, I think you're right. I think that communicating the human need to take a break, it's really necessary. And it's also kind of difficult to do sometimes, but mm -hmm. it's definitely something I'm, I'm committed to learning and to doing better on. Take this lovely Saturday, for instance. Right. No plans, just going to chill. <laughs> well, those are all my questions. I'll be sure to link everything in the show notes. Um, as a sort of palate cleanser and to leave us on a high note, I have a final question. Okay. You can answer either both or one. What is the best advice you were ever given or what is a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Hmm. I'll try to answer both. Okay. <laughs> Um, I, I, but well, so I don't know if this is the best advice I've ever been given. Um, but something that's just lives in my brain rent free all the time <laughs> <laughs> is this, um, quote from Octavia Butler, uh, novel, The Parable of the Sower. And in it, there's this religion called Earthseed, and there's a book called The Book of Earthseed. And in the Book of Earthseed, one of the one of the lines in the book is um, everything you touch, you change and everything you change changes you. And I just think about that so much because it's really easy to forget that relationship of reciprocity um, and that the things you're working on are working on you. The people you're working with are working with you. And there's this, always this, it's not even a two way street. It's like a many, like you're just, there's no bystander. There's no way to just be um, a neutral party in it. You're 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 in it. You're affecting things. Things are being are affecting you. And I think recognizing that, thinking about that, I has challenged the way I interact with people and the way I show up in spaces and. Um, you know, it, this goes back, I think, to the conversation we're having about rest, right? Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden, your choice to rest is also affecting the way you're going to show up. And mm -hmm. so um, it's definitely something that means a lot to me. And then advice to my younger self mm -hmm. is something that I, it was is also still valid advice to my current self. <laughs> um, but it Okay, <laughs> it's gonna sound a little philosophical, but we'll, we'll get through it. Okay. Um, that 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 time isn't this uniform standard thing, and that many different beings experience time differently. Different processes have cycles that are different, and so there's many different times for things, and that entering into relation with the world with community with processes and people around you in life is about making room and slowing down and recognizing the different 
times for the different things, the different rhythms for the different parts of life and find, you know, allowing yourself to fall into the right rhythm for the right cycle. And, you know, I have friends that ha that move at different rhythms. I have friends that like to, you know, zip around and, and there's this like energy and life there. And I have friends and people I know that, that move slower. And so being able to like recognize that everybody is kind of moving at this rhythm and not trying to show up to people's lives and demand that everybody move at my rhythm, um, but recognize the, just the main rhythms of life and um, making space for that um that would be that is my advice to my current and younger self <laughs> that's it for this week's episode of the tea with brie be sure to follow the podcast on instagram at the tea with brie send me an email at the tea with brie at gmail.com or visit the website the tea with brie podcast.com you can find me your host brianna jenkins on instagram at brianna jenkins don't forget to rate review and follow on apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts a special thanks to mama duke for our theme music and i will catch you next time bye